Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Hey everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Sadie St. Lawrence, and today I'm joined with Prasanna Puri, who is currently the Director of Data Science for PepsiCo. She has over 27 years of IT industry experience, especially in data and analytics space, and has played multiple roles as a solutions architect, program and delivery management. She has deep experience in handling large data management, data warehousing and analytics programs across manufacturing, services, healthcare and baking domains. We're really excited to have you, Prasanna. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, it's my pleasure to be here and then part of this podcast. Wonderful. Yeah, so I'd love to dive in um, right into data architecture. So not into a, <laughs> into a heavy topic here, but you have really deep experience in data architecture. And I'd love to know what are some of your core principles when designing a data architecture to make sure it's flexible, scalable, and really enables your data teams to be successful? Absolutely. It's a fantastic question. In fact, to address it, and to start with the I, before I just address uh, some of the aspects uh, with you, I would like to give a little analogy. Uh, in today's world, the data is growing heavily and exponentially. And uh, IoT machines are generating, clicks are generating, and then uh, social media are generating high volumes of data in different format. Most of the old technologies and platforms which were working in the past may not work today, tomorrow. And maintaining these older technologies and platforms is becoming a highly costly affair uh, for the organizations. How do we address these changing requirements and you know, challenges? I could think of four aspects uh, basically which could result in flexible uh, uh, data architecture aspect. First being the infrastructure architecture. When it comes to the infrastructure architecture, if you look at it right, business uh, needs IT platforms to be flexible, agile and adaptable. If you look at it already, a lot of organizations are moving towards the cloud for strategy. If we are moving into the cloud for strategy, what are that you know we have to look at you know from a uh, highly scalable uh, uh, data architecture standpoint? First one is in the uh, cloud, how the cloud is going to be you know enabling this particular aspect right to address high volumes and velocity of uh, data sets. Seeing that uh, you know the cloud for strategy. Uh, most of the larger organizations, I just uh, touch upon one more point uh, uh, from a cloud strategy standpoint. Most of the la larger organizations, a single cloud strategy may not be sufficient. The way business is complex and you know technologies are complex. Saying that, I would like to give a couple of solutions uh, which I could think of. First one being uh, hybrid cloud architectures and the second being uh, uh, highly performing on-prem uh, solutions, which can be potentially uh, move or potential to move into cloud later point in time. Saying that first point is the infrastructure architecture. Second point I would like to touch upon is a uh, uh, parallel and distributed processing. If we look at it, right, artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions requires a lot of compute and uh, huge amount of time is required to uh, train and test the models. We, if we don't have uh, you know, parallel and distributed platforms, 
it is very difficult to you know get the results out of these models so second aspect and critical aspect is having a uh, parallel and distributed uh, compute uh, uh, scenarios and the third being a scalability if we look at it right uh, in the past it used to take uh, days to months to many months to get any infrastructure to upgrade is the business really you know can wait uh, so uh, so much time absolutely no so see, being said that so we it is inevitable to have an architecture which can scale up very fast it's almost like within no time period so that's the third aspect i could think of and the fourth one very critical one is data access when we are de designing the data architecture which is very flexible data access is very very important it needs to be you know accessed by the business user data architects in a ease with ease and without having you know much wrestling power right we we don't need to show that you know wrestling power to access the data so that's that's the critical essence of the uh, you know designing flexible data architectures awesome there's a lot of great insights in there that i want to dive into but i want to talk about your first point which is i'm really happy you brought it up talking about a lot of times we're moving existing systems over, right? We're not starting fresh, right? Unless you're maybe working on a startup where you know you're designing the first ever system. But you know, PepsiCo is a over 50-year-old company, right? So you have experience, I'm sure, taking these existing systems. And a lot of the organizations that we work at, you know, usually there already is existing architecture. So you laid a great outline for moving to the cloud and what you're looking for, but how do you balance that? Do you move your data over to the cloud? Do you take a hybrid approach? Because I think that's the trick that everybody's trying to tackle is how do we build the new, but either keep the old systems or transfer the old systems into this new world? So do you have any points for that of dealing with? Absolutely, absolutely, Sadi. In fact, I would like to touch upon it. It's a very, very you know, important question because organizations are not in a position to replace entire infrastructure and applications which are existing because they are built over the period and it requires huge amount of you know, cost and you know, difficulty in replacing them. But saying that uh, latest technologies, they have a lot of you know, uh, essence to uh, integrate in a unified way. But at the same time, how do we unif uh, the, you know, integrate? Because there is a lot of you know, complexities in the underlying architectures, right? So it is required uh, the business users and you know, technology experts and process experts come together to define which modules can be complex module can, modules can be simplified and which can be integrated as a holistic way, right? And then so that you know, we can have a you know, uh, global usage or wireframing those modules together and have a, glo a global view on top of it. So best example could be you know, a lot of uh, you know, organizations are going towards uh, uh, you know, uh, business planning across the uh, different functional units. It is not necessary that you know, we have to replace every application that is underlying application. It's very difficult and huge. So this is essence that you know, all the three pillars of technology, business team, and you know, um, process team come together and define which are the modules are really non-performing, right? And then uh, do a, 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 maybe a replacement or you know, upgrade or you know, uh, take a decision. It's not like a one-to-one -one, one kind of a solution where I can get, just go and you know, replace the stuff uh, over a day. It should be eventually happen. Yep. Yeah, I love that approach of, hey, 
just because we have everything doesn't mean it all needs to be moved at once. There's higher priorities and more importance and to align those with the business strategy as well. That's, that's a great tip. So you've gone through this process a couple of times at PepsiCo. What have been some of the challenges and learnings along the way as you've redesigned PepsiCo's data science architecture and what have you learned through that process? It's a great question. In fact, I touched upon one of the aspects uh, just before this one is the complexity. That's not necessarily only the PepsiCo's challenge. It's most of the organizations, the larger organizations undergo, undergoing these uh, kind of a challenges, right? Complexities. How do we define uh, or simplify the uh, complexities uh, within the uh, underlying architectures, right? This is one of the aspects. As I gave one example of you know integrated business planning, for example, how do we do the integrated business planning across the business uh, business business value chain? How do we simplify that? Because it's it's a very very complex uh, you know solution to be built in, right? So that's that's one of the aspect. And the second aspect could be uh, data cataloging and data availability, basically, because uh, larger organizations they require it. It's very difficult because they have a federated uh, uh, solutions. They have a, at the same time, they have a global view, they need to bring it up, right? So how do we bring that? So one of the aspect is, you know, building the data catalog. So once we build the data catalog, what's going to happen is it's going to give a, a you know, complete, it's, it's very easy for the users, data users or data experts or, you know, uh, business users or data scientists can go and pick up the data in a very, very easy format, correct? And also it gives opportunity to have data stewards, SMEs, uh, known to external world. So it's, it's very easy for the data users to go and you know whom to reach and when to reach, where to reach kind of a thing to get a, to get understanding about the data. So this is uh, from a large organizations like PepsiCo, it is very, very critical to build such a data catalog solutions to make business users, data experts, scientists, or research ease. That's that's one of the uh, couple of aspects which I could think of, you know, uh, makes it, uh, you know, more and more uh, uh, focus on the challenging aspects. Yeah, great point. We, I love data catalogs and they've definitely become really popular this year. We've had a few workshops here at Women in Data in regards to data cataloging. I think one of the challenges we keep seeing pop up though is how do you keep your data catalog current, right? So it always seems that there's development and then the data catalog is, oh, we forgot and we need to go make sure we update that, right? And the data catalog is only as good as how accurate it is and reflects of the data. So any tips on just the data catalog aspect and, and keeping that current with the new developments? Absolutely, because this is a, uh, when we are, uh, you know, uh, building these data catalogs, we have definitely need to have, a, for every data asset, we need to have authority, uh, data stewards and uh, authorization uh, team, right? They need mm -hmm. to be there and, you know, to ensure that, you know, latest data is up, uh, updated in the data cataloging solution. And also, it is not that, you know, each and every data flows over there, because we have, uh, when we have a federated business models, it is, Obvious that you know one product, the same product may be called differently in different uh, sectors, right? So what is that you know we have to bring into the model, which can be later you know um, uh, referenced differently by the different uh, different users. But essentially, what exactly is the fundamental uh, you know master uh, details of that particular product? So this is the essence. That's where the data stewards and governance comes into picture. 
Yeah, so it sounds like you've created a really amazing architecture. I'm sure we have a lot of data scientists listening like, oh, that I want to come work at PepsiCo now because it sounds like they have a good foundation. Can you talk about some of the innovations that have happened at PepsiCo because of this, right? Now that you have people who have access to the data who can quickly scale it up and have a data catalog that they can use to reference it, what have you seen as the outcome from establishing that? Absolutely, because this this couple of uh, you know initiatives, as I mentioned, right? We have data cataloging is one of them, and then uh, this is going to make uh, very ease uh, to the data scientists and business users uh, to leverage this particular platform. And then a couple of things, uh, you know, from uh, uh, as I mentioned, right? Uh, uh, on prem uh, on prem to cloud migrations, that's one of the uh, innovation which we need to think about it, uh, you know, going forward. We are already you know onto uh, the strategy. And then uh, to be very specific on the data architecture and data science standpoint, uh, I would like to touch upon a couple of points, right? Uh, one being, you know, serverless architectures, data architectures, right? So, which is very essential. If you look at it today in the, uh, we have a lot of, you know, uh, technologies are available like Amazon's S3, Google BigQuery, and then, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft uh, Synapse. So being said that, we can uh, these are the ones which we can leverage to build uh, you know uh, data uh, centric applications which gives a you know very uh, robust and you know fast pace of deployments and also hassle free you know maintenance etc it's it's virtually no uh, operational overheads this is one of the thing i could think of and the second point comes is the uh, containerization of the solutions right data solutions for example kubernetes if you look at it, the Kubernetes gives an opportunity to you know, uh, deploy uh, storage and uh, compute uh, systems uh, with ease. As uh, Gartner mentioned, by 2025, a lot of, uh, you know, almost like 85% of organizations uh, could be running on uh, containerized solutions in production, which is way uh, above, which was 35% in somewhere in uh, 2019. So these are the couple of things which I could think of. And the another aspect is uh, modularization of, uh, uh, it, it's, it's from uh, moving from enterprise architecture to modularized or domain-driven architecture. That's one of the key aspect because in the, in the, in the uh, legacy systems where we built uh, data warehouses and data enterprises uh, solutions, right? Which is where, you know, they are very good for uh, reporting solutions. But coming to the advanced analytics or machine learning solutions, it is very, very, very critical that you know, we go into domain-based, domain-driven uh, architectures. We use the technologies there. We were using mostly dimensional modeling. But when it comes to uh, data-driven architectures, we will be using leveraging mostly denormalized aspects. So that you know, it's not that you know, business users or data scientists or whoever are uh, going to be the data users, they can uh, see uh, the use, utilize the data very easily and effectively. And also, this also gives the opportunity to build self-driven uh, analytics architectures. Those are some of the three, uh, two, three pointers I would think of, you know, makes innovation uh, culture to bring it up. Awesome, yeah, I, I really love your approach to things because one of the things that you told me was you took in a way, I think a lot of people would think of it as a big risk by hiring non-technical people and train them to be architects. 
And, you know, usually most people make sure people have the skills first and then hire them, but you took a risk to do this. So would love to learn a little bit more about what made you do that and how did it turn out and what did you learn from that process? It's really interesting. And I feel really good about it when I remember the story, in fact. So it was early, like, you know, 2005. Uh, we had to build, uh, you know, financial analytic solutions for one of the manufacturing company. That time it was a dearth of, uh, you know, data uh, SMEs. Basically, you know, if you look at it, any uh, analytic solutions, as we are all aware, it requires a lot of domain expertise to build, uh, to make any successful solution in the analytics space. So what happened is in that time, we had dearth of uh, data SMEs, uh, I mean, domain SMEs and as well as the scarcity of data architects. In fact, uh, because that was the time where analytics was like, you know, booming, right? Yeah. So it was not uh, many companies were adopting. It's just maybe the bits and pieces, the uh, uh, architectures and coming and, you know, uh, they were working in silos, not like enterprise-wide. So what happened is uh, that time we had to build, uh, because this was a major man manufacturing giant, uh, based client, right, in US based client. So what happened is, you know, we had to take a bold decision uh, to go and recruit, uh, you know, financial experts and who are really SMEs. So we deployed them as SMEs for six months. And parallelly, we, what we did is, you know, we did a foolproof six months training, rigorous training on technology. And after six months, they started doing, uh, you know, wonders. It was it was a new for all of us. Basically, it was new for all of us, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, it was a it was a shocking success also. In fact, and if you look at it today, all of them uh, who were whoever got cross trained, they are doing really great uh, in their current uh, roles in the organizations and building complex architectures. That's uh, I think uh, one of the really success story, but. And saying that I we did not I especially did not stop the same kind of a, a you know approach even till today I'm still experimenting and you know majority of the cases I'm getting success. Awesome, I love that, and I'm so happy you share this story because I've always had this theory, but I've never tested it out. And was that you? If you take people who are SMEs in their area, right, subject matter experts, and then train them on the technology side of things, they'll actually be more successful because. So many times we run where technology people have trouble understanding that business domain. And so you did it and tested it out and it was successful. Um, so I appreciate now you've added some more data to my model of, of theory as well. So I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, but in that same regard, do you have a preference now that you've seen taking, you know, domain experts and training them in technology? versus taking technology people and training them in the business domain, is one better than the other? Oh, it's, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> it actually you know, comes with the attitude of individuals also, right? Because what happens is individuals needs to be ready. Uh, most of the time, what happens is technologists, they don't prefer getting to the you know, domain experts expertise. They think that, okay, they are in the technology domain. It's, it's better for, you know, uh, scale up, right? They would love to get, uh, you know, trained on X technologies, Y technologies most of the time, but not from a domain expertise. But where it comes to, you know, the challenging uh, observation, uh, what I we made is, you know, domain experts are really willing to get onto the technology. That's where we did uh, this experiment, in fact. 
but it's tough to you know convince uh, most of the time to you know get the uh, technology transfer or domain transfer between the teams makes sense so it's it's really obvious you care very much about people and the culture at PepsiCo, but your care for people goes outside of PepsiCo and you do a lot of work educating girls in rural areas of India. I would love to know where this passion started and what are some of the things you've learned from doing this work? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot of, uh, you know, lessons while uh, doing this, uh, you know, uh, educating girls in the rural areas. I, I also learned a lot of insights, basically. Uh, what was happening is uh, sometime back, maybe 15 years back, uh, I was just going to some of the, you know, orphanages and, you know, donating the money and, you know, giving some food, etc. Then I realized, am I doing the right thing? Hmm. Is it helping them? Maybe it is temporarily helping them to give a food, etc. and all. What if I go and you know start uh, giving education uh, to those people who are in rural areas? So that is where my thought process you know provoked to get into you know different aspects, right? Because one of the things which my uh, father used to say, nobody can steal your knowledge, but mm. they can steal money. Yeah, that's that's one of the things which you know got into my mind uh, and it's, it's actually provoked me to get into that area. And then I started uh, taking up this initiative to go myself uh, and teaching the girls. Uh, so I just happened to read uh, some of the articles recently. Uh, one of the US, uh, UN article, it says that, uh, you know, uh, in Africa, uh, South Africa, a lot of girls are not stopping or excluded from education, not just because of uh, their willingness or social uh, restrictions, it's just because of poverty, right? Mm. So that's that's really you know uh, very you know uh, sad uh, sadness of the part of the story, and the second comes uh, the, there are lack of uh, schools in the rural areas, infrastructure, hygiene perspective. So actually, all these things are you know making girls not to be in school. So that is the second aspect, and the third aspect comes. Uh, what is happening fundamentally when the girls are not educated? There is a pressure on them to get married. So it's a child marriage uh, being, you know, uh, pushed upon and then uh, health, that's actually, you know, impacting their health, etc. and all, right? So taking is looking at all these aspects, what I thought is uh, educating one girl, uh, which means uh, giving much to, lot to the family and eventually to the society. That's, that's one of the analogy which I could think about it and, you know, started uh, doing the aspects. Yeah, I really love that quote of, you know, anyone can take your money, but they can't take your knowledge, right? And I think at Women in Data, we're, we really believe that and why education is one of our core pillars is because we know that, hey, when you enable women and girls, like that's something they have forever. And then usually that goes back and benefits their community. So it benefits the whole world. And I, I just love how you took such a proactive approach with what you were noticing by donating, but realizing like, hey, how can I do more and how can I solve this problem? So yeah, big kudos to you. That's that's incredible. Thank you. So just wrapping up, um, if there are people out there, I wanna address this from two standpoints. So those who would like to become a data architect and those who are leading a data organization, what advice do you have for those 
who are would love to become a data architect, what training should they do? And then for those who are leading an organization and, and know that they need to revamp their data architecture, what advice do you have for those people as well? Sure, definitely. I think uh, it's, it's a, I would like to give a, you know, advice uh, for some of them, like, you know, because when I started, I, I, I will give my example, basically. I started my career uh, 27 years back as a core programmer, uh, where I was not even, you know, understanding what exactly is a data, because I was mostly on the scientific application side. So in 2000, uh, when the uh, dot com was down, that's where, you know, I had to look at, you know, okay, changing my domain from, you know, system programming to data side. So that's where I started looking at, you know, what are the options, how I need to get trained, right? Uh, basically, how I started is I just started getting into the uh, uh, BI area first. So because this is going to give for you before even getting into the data architecture, this gives an opportunity for you to understand what exactly the business problem. I don't prefer you know, anyone getting into the data architecture right away, uh, beginning of their career, because they need to understand, they need to have a lot of understanding on the data and also technology stack. What are the technologies and what are the flexibilities are there? How do you design? So basically to start with, uh, I would recommend the people to go into um, analytics side to start with, uh, maybe not like complex analytics, but eventually they need to get onto the uh, data architecture side once they understand the domain, once they understand what the business needs are, how do we you know, build the robust uh, data applications? That, that's how I could you know, frame my you know, career. So I feel that worked out well for me. Yes, I think it did as well. I love it. I love that you're always self-analyzing and seeing, hey, where do I need to pivot? Where do I need to grow and learn? Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in connecting with you, what's the best way for them to learn about your work and reach out and connect with you? Absolutely. No, sure. Definitely. They can reach out to me on my LinkedIn. I have my LinkedIn profile and I updated my email ID, etc. It's a Gmail ID. I am very much, you know, open to, you know, have a very good connects and, you know, have my extensions to my knowledge and as well. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure we'll put your LinkedIn in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. It's been a great conversation in regards to data architecture, you know, helping people grow and learn in this space and really just appreciate the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sadie, and appreciate, you know, uh, inviting me for this podcast. And I would love to, you know, uh, look forward to see more associations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.